Welcome to another episode of 353rd, a bi-weekly podcast discussing the impact of the internet on business. Today is Wednesday, July 31st, 2013. This is episode number 57. Wow. I am your host, Scott Barstow. I'm your other host in beautiful Cambridge, Andres Brownworth. On today's show, we are going to be talking about the trend toward peer networks and why we believe that this represents the next wave on the internet. I, this is very important, I think. It is very important. However, we need to start the show with, uh, with the fact that you just bought one of these Google Chrome TV things. <laughs> I did. I shouldn't have told you. Yeah, because I'm, I'm upset about it. You are, yeah. apparently. Yeah, I, I don't know why you would have bought one. Well, uh, to have a device that you can send a 264 stream to and have it show up, I mean, that's not bad. I guess. Anyway. You remain like, unsold. <laughs> $35, come on. Yeah, you may as well have opened up your window and thrown the 35 bucks out the window. Actually, what I think is uh, it, it makes me ask the question, how come the Apple TV wasn't made around the HDMI architecture? Like that is a very good question and one we should cover on some other show because I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Th this seems to be the first, certainly the first mass product that is powered by HDMI. Y you know, it uses, it has all the standard things you would think, uh, Wi-Fi, uh, the ability to, you know, some kind of a graphics chip ability to render, but it's all powered by HDMI, which, Obviously, power is in HDMI, just like it's in USB. Yeah. Uh, just nobody exploited it until now. Yeah, so. the, I think the, the other question for Apple TV, and then we'll move on, is why in the world is there no browser on the Apple TV? But anyway. Well, I don't think it's the right model. Uh, I don't know. I, have a, I, I don't want to get into that because we'll just, <laughs> we'll just freaking go down a rat hole. Us? Go down <laughs> a rat hole? All right. Never happens. Well, let's let's talk. Uh, let's talk the peer let's network. Let's talk peer here. networks. Yeah. So why don't you why don't you regale us with a very short, which I know is very difficult for you to do, history of how we got to where we are right now. Well, uh, it is very hard to do. You're right. We were just talking about this before. I think I think it it bears uh, it it bears sort of a, a synopsis, a quick synopsis of history as to where computing started. Some of the pretty major block and tackle type steps that it's had and then where you scott and i believe it it is going um yeah. this started way back in the day uh, with a mainframe remember you know we had a mainframe at the the school where my dad taught and it was this very 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 expensive multi hundred thousand dollar computer it may have been a million dollars for all i know i don't know Sitting in the basement of a of a building that had its own air conditioning system just for the computer, and then a whole bunch of dumb terminals all over the school, which were yep. connected through twisted pair serial lines, really really long ones. Yep, remember it. Um, and so all of the intelligence was in the center of the network, and and that was a function of the price of integrated circuits at the time, and of course. The predecessors to this were uh, not even integrated circuits. They were they were relays and and you know vacuum tubes back in the day. So because of maybe because of that constraint, computing was centralized in one generally the size of the room device. Then the whole 
uh, sort of mini computer and then personal computer revolutions happened. And suddenly these devices, which were enormous, are now the size of a thing that sits next to the desk and then eventually something that sits on the desk. And when when that came about, and that's really where I believe you and I really first started to work with computers. That's right. That's the point where there was a desktop, no no peer. It had no center, no network. Uh, it was essentially just machines on, on islands. Yeah, and you sneaker netted data between one and the other using dis- you know floppy disks or whatever it was. Floppy disks or tape or or any yep. one of these hard things. Uh, we had punch cards for a while there. Yeah. But between the two, interestingly, the the internet started. Uh, the the internet as we know it, late seventies, the uh, network of networks, uh, which was an academic thing that was put together. Wouldn't it be great if? All the computer, any computer could talk to any other computer just by talking via an address. And yeah. so it was this peer idea uh, invented by Alberto Gore. Yeah, um, you know, Al Gore was so brilliant to come up with that idea. It's, it, I'm still amazed to this day. It is. And especially yeah. if you ask him about TCP IP, he really That's right. can talk your ear off. Anyway, go on forever. <laughs> anyway, so we had these desktops and there were these islands. And then... You know, at some point in the 80s, we started networking desktops, desktops and, and, you know, sort of repurposed desktops that acted as if they were servers. And and now you had all the smarts there on the edges with a, a server that had some smarts, but kind of pretty equal smarts here. here yeah. There and and really, the server's main job was to control who had access to what data. I mean, that was really, if you right, think about NetWare, that was really all that it did. Yeah, it didn't really do any any computing, any uh, uh, calculation. I mean, it did calculations, but it didn't perform calculations like they like you would do in a spreadsheet, for example, something that would show up uh, to the end user, maybe calculate books or something. That was always done on the on the edges of these networks. And yep. then we got to the hosted slash SaaS slash, you know, it's all in the cloud. And this yeah. is right about where we are now, where you have sort of a dumber edge in a web browser that is running on, on a computer, but it, you're, you're, you're constrained to what you can do in a web browser and a bit smarter of a center. And it deals with authentication and uh, who has access to what, but it also... You know, in the case of Google spreadsheets, for example, you know, things are, are stored and calculated in the cloud at times and database. It's kind of halfway between the, the browser and the, and the cloud. Yep. And so you've seen this slightly dumber edge, but a smarter center. Yeah. And um, I think the, the, next, the next thing is kind of before we get to peers, you kind of had this with this whole SaaS and cloud thing. And then the advent of smartphones, of the really the smartphone, I would argue, which is the launch of the iPhone, you sort of had this move that where you had, a, you had more intelligence on the edge in the form of apps and things like that. And I guess you had that with BlackBerry before that. If you consider mail, you know, which is really what the BlackBerry did, um, you had mail and texting. Yeah. So there was some power and some smarts a little bit more power, a little bit more smarts than just a web browser out on the edge, but not not quite to where we are today. True. And I think I think really I mean we, we've said this before, the the iPhone is is pretty much misnamed. It's 
really not a phone. That's not its primary purpose. It's really an always-on computer, always-connected computer in your pocket. Yep. And and when you look at it for in that light, now it's a uh, you know a bit smarter of a device on the edge. That's sort of always on the edge, you know, no matter where you are, or, or, or right. nearly always. Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. Uh, and then we believe it's, it's going to the peer, and we've seen the peer show up in fits and starts before. So to do, but to quickly define it, a peer network is when you have either a specification or an implementation that works completely from, from head to toe all in one peer. So the, the smarts of everything that can be done is all completely contained in every peer on the network. And the peers on the network, however they do, find each other. And there is no central controlling authority. The peers have divvied it all up in a sense. In order to participate on the peer network and get the benefits that the peers have, you have to uh, give some some benefit to the network. You have to uh, play by the rules and do the things that the network uh, generally wants done in order to be able to supply this service. So peer networks, uh, that whole peer idea has existed for a long time. Matter of fact, we've seen lots of implementations of this. Uh, Napster, uh, BitTorrent, uh, the early days of Skype was mm -hmm. really a, a peer network. They've They've sort of gone much more toward the the client server uh, thing more recently but it it all started with the uh the the whole peer idea like if the peers are online then you are online there was no center and i see that uh you know so i i see that kind of an idea uh you know you have to think back and say hey isn't this the way the internet was originally intended that's right and and it's true like all the all the devices on all all the edges were could go talk to each other now it just so happens for whatever reason call it security call it running out of ip addresses whatever the reason people put nat devices in which allow multiple uh, computers to get on the internet through one connection and generally then through one IP address. And the downside there is if you're coming from the outside, if you're another of these peers on the network, you can't uniquely identify each of the computers behind one NAT device because they're all, there could be many of them behind one IP. So an IP address and port combination are, are, are essentially not directly addressable on the internet anymore, sort of breaking the original intent of the internet. However, with Android and iOS and, and basically all of the smartphones coming out there, we're suddenly getting back to a world where devices actually have real IPs that can be directly addressed from anywhere in the world, really getting much more toward what the internet was originally intended to be. Yeah, I agree. I think the... What makes it different this time around, and as you were going back through that history and thinking, you know, we've kind of, we've always waxed and waned. We went from to the center, to the edge, back to the center with client server, mm -hmm. you know, then <clears throat> kind of a hybrid with, with the whole SaaS and cloud thing. And there's, there's been reasons why that's been kind of the, the technology uh, du jour during each of those times. There were always reasons yeah. why it made sense to do those things. And I think what's interesting about right now is that the power that you carry around in your pocket is equivalent 
to you, you know, 10 years ago, putting your desktop computer in your pocket and walking around with it. Yeah. You have this, you have this amazing amount of processing power, video, audio, like everything you could ever have done, you know, 10 or even probably seven or eight years ago with those behemoth machines that we always coded on. Yeah. You now walk around with that kind of compute power, if not much greater in your pocket. And so that device can not only, it's not only a client, but it also can just sit there and be, it can be an active peer to do these functions that we are used to having to go through the center of the network with. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would say generally if the color of the computer was beige, you, you can do exactly what that computer could do back in the day on any smartphone these days. Yeah. That's the, the analog is, is interesting because uh, back in the day we had processors that would, you know, go only so fast and, and IO that would go only so fast. So some of the things people started to do to make things appear faster, like for example, you know, the gaming world, right. Was to really beef up on the, the video processing capabilities and, and, and exactly that exists in the iPhone, in Android, they all have GPUs and that split still exists. It's not like the processors are really that much faster. It's really that there's these special purpose things that used to be on the desktop, that one one central processing unit for your for your data on the computer, but then a, a whole separate set of uh, processing units very distributed for the the very distributed problem of of showing video. Same exact thing uh, works on the on the hand uh, handset now. Pretty amazing. It really is. And so if if you're carrying a device that's that powerful around with you all the time and it's always on the network, uh, unlike BitTorrent where you're exchanging obviously vast amounts of data across all these peers, what, what's really interesting for me about things like Bitcoin and WebRTC, and we'll get to what, those, what WebRTC is in a second, is that you have these very lightweight um, protocols that – uh, that can exchange data, just enough data to keep each other figure, you know, knowing what's going on. Um, and yet, uh, but it just doesn't, you don't have this, uh, you don't have this mountain of data having to reside necessarily on the device itself. Obviously, BitTorrent, there's a lot of data moving back and forth. So maybe that's a bad example. No. But, but it's, but it, the, the, the processing power that it takes to run a Bitcoin peer if you're not mining is negligible negligible that's true said another way uh in the in the old school way of doing things where the services had a centralized server you know think google right you go to a website and you make your request of google and the central server answers you in, in a world where that was the case, the center had to remember everything that's going on with all the peers everywhere or all the, all the, the clients on the edge everywhere. Well, in a peer network, arguably, the peers really only need to know about the services that they are supplying right that second. So in the case of WebRTC, one peer may, you know, own the two peers that are, that are doing a communication session, let's say they're, they're doing a video chat. Those are the only ones that really need to know about it. That's Nobody right. else in the network does. So it, it, 
gets rid of all of that, uh, that stuff being centralized in, in the core. Now, there is another side to that, and, and that is, you know, it, it's, it's sort of, it's more efficient in that sense, but it's less efficient in the sense that because there is no center, you end up having to rely on things like quorum of peers, a quorum of peers saying, yeah, you know, you need to go in this direction to go, you know, if I want to call you, Scott, I would ask a bunch of peers and, and they would kind of all say, yeah, you kind of want to go over there and maybe one or two stragglers say it's somewhere else. I'm going to go with the quorum. Now, in doing that, I've sent my uh, my request to many computers and many computers have made an answer for me and, and sent them all back and that's less efficient. That's but right. that is a far cry from having everything, you know, all the memory requirements and whatnot and uh, uptime requirements, particularly of having things in the center of the, the network. Pretty obviously, if you knock out the center of the network, if you turn it off, it loses power. Whatever happens, something happens in the memory, everybody goes down. We're in, in a peer network if if one of the peers goes down, well, that peer isn't can't be on the network right now. You can't reach them. But otherwise, the 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 peer network in general stays relatively healthy. That's right. I think the, there's some interesting ramifications for this in things like natural disasters, where uh, and we've seen we've seen this project called the Serval Project, yeah, where. <clears throat> The, the the ramifications of this are think about if we had a hurricane or something like that and knocked out all of the cell towers in Raleigh as a kind of a doomsday scenario, which can happen. And we, uh, we I guess we saw this with 9-11 cell service really just stopped working. In yeah. New and York. Sandy and Katrina. I mean, yep. it happens. Yeah, it happens well, either let, to, due to volume on the network or whatever. Let's let's uh, let's quickly define it. So so Serval is a project that allows a phone to send texts and make voice calls uh, through a mesh network. So it self-organizes a wireless network, and then it self-organizes a phone system on top of that network. That's what we're talking about. That's right. And I think it's that project is kind of what started us. Well, it's not what started us thinking about all of this, but it's really, a, I think it's another indicator of uh, of the power of not relying on, you know, this central infrastructure, which is what we've, come to rely on for just so many services, yeah. whether it's phone or cable or, you know, whatever the critical systems are that you use. I mean, just think about for, if you're a heavy Google user, just think about what happens if Google goes offline. And that <laughs> happens from time to time, you know, where Gmail stops working. When Gmail stops working, the internet erupts. Yeah. It sure does. <laughs> and, you know, then there and there's then there's all manner of wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I think what the interesting thing about peering is that it let's take that same example. If I were making a Google Voice call to you and Google Voice drops offline, uh, I now have no way to reach you. Yeah. Right. If that service drops offline, whereas in a peer network with Serval or something we build with WebRTC, as long as some of the other peers are up and I can figure out how to get to you. I don't need that central service telling me where you are. Right. So let's, so here's a, here's an interesting way to, uh, to, to think about the implications here. So we're participating in this, this, uh, network. Let's just call it a phone network. I'm able to call you. You're able to call whomever else, whatever. But it's a distributed thing with peers. Then Katrina happens. A good slice of the, the network gets cut off. They can still talk to each other, but they can't talk to anybody on the outside, as it were. Right. In current scenarios, 
those phones, even though they technically could talk to each other, wouldn't be able to because you would have to go to the center to find out where a certain person is or to get authorization or whatever it happens to be. In this scenario, the, the network essentially forks in half and then the peers that can talk to each other are able to continue talking to each other. Now, changes happen. People change their number, people move from one place to another, whatever it happens to be. So the, the network might not be quite as up to date, but in a disaster scenario, you know, who cares, right? right? It doesn't matter. It's the, the, you know, having something versus not is, is just a huge, huge difference. And then what happens is eventually at some point, some peer on that network gets reconnected to the rest of the internet and the rest of the world. And others are now able to make calls through that to get out. And then the networks heal themselves back together into one network. They, they look at those, those discrepancies that have happened. Maybe some, some things were changed on the public net and they weren't changed on the private net. The private net realizes that those changes happen are, are all newer than the version that it has. And it eventually adopts them because the quorum of peers out there says, Hey, this is actually legit and real. Mm. Um, so, so it has interesting, like you can see how rather than, rather than getting split off and just totally crashing, it splits into an alternate version of the universe where things are at least as good as, or, uh, you know, people are at least as accessible as they were or accessible through the same numbers that they were when the split happens. And then when it rejoins, things just kind of catch up. Um, yeah, it's, it's almost like, if you think this is probably a bad analogy, but it's almost like you know, this is, you know, the, the story of the starfish, you know, if you cut off one of the starfish's legs, it grows again. Yeah. That's kind of what happens here. Yeah, it is. Like a yeah. chunk of the network just gets completely hacked off. And the and the the network survives until it has enough to kind of grow that leg back and get back to full health. Yeah, and yeah, that's exactly what happens. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the things I thought would be interesting before we before we sign off for this week is to talk about why we think this matters so much. And I think one of the one of the most obvious things is what we've seen over the last few months with with the centralization of services, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, or Google, or, you know, Microsoft's mail stuff, or whatever it is, what we've seen with the ability for governments to tap those services and get additional information that yeah. they that would have been very difficult if this were a peer network, I think that's, I think that's one of the forces in play uh, as we move toward this peer and distributed, back toward this distributed model it seems to me that privacy is one of the fundamental things that a peer network can bring. It doesn't have to. It depends on all of the security within the application and all of those kind of things. And all of that still has to be done right. It's not inherently secure because it's a peer network. But it seems like that sort of thing really has large implications on privacy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I I think it's it's uh, the the... Uh, the security angle there is is a, an important one, but I just I have the sense that even now we haven't seen the big, you know, the big break, like the big 1984 Orwellian, you know, disaster scenario. We haven't seen it yet, and I no. feel like we will. However, uh, peer projects, uh, most significantly Bitcoin, which which is using a proof of work algorithm. 
to uh, to keep peers honest, essentially. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, they're doing it with with money, with uh, with uh, a That's cryptocurrency. Right. So if if there's ever a, a an incentive to hack something, it's with Bitcoin. So you got to you got to know that, you know, now we're a few years on, you know, Bitcoin has been been around since, you know, for, what is it, 2009 or something? Yeah, 2009, I believe. So it's it's been some time. You would imagine that if there were some big gaping hole, people would have gotten it or gotten at it already. Yeah, and now, it's not like there's not enough money at stake. There's currently what close to a billion dollars in the Bitcoin it's, ecosystem. At yeah, the it's over a billion dollars now, actually. Um, so yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not that you could suddenly turn around and you know have a billion dollars if you broke it. You'd need to you know f- you need to trade out the the cash to trade out the coin to get the cash, but. The point is, you know, there's a lot of money at stake here. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a that's a very strong argument for a a peer network. This is something yeah. that is completely decentralized. There is no center. Um, so I think, you know, you're talking about uh, uh, the, you know, we're talking about like why does this matter? So so there's privacy. Uh, there's the security of it. It's, it's cryptographically guaranteed. Essentially, rather than being backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government, Bitcoin is backed by the full faith and credit of math, you know, of, of cryptography. The fact that we have no easy way of going backwards through some uh, uh, algorithms. We can very easily go forwards and see what the answer is, but we can't take an answer and come back with the original inputs. Uh-huh. Um, and, and that's mathematically borne out. Uh, nobody has proved that you can't do it though. Uh, but you know, the fact that there's a billion dollars at stake and nobody's, uh, nobody's been able to come anywhere close to, to cracking that, I, I think is, is a pretty good argument. I agree. Um, you know, and then, and then you get other protocols like WebRTC, which are, uh, protocols that are totally designed the way the internet was first envisioned a completely pure thing, but there is no coordinating. There's nothing said about the coordination of it. So if you know about a peer and there is a peer somewhere else and you want to make a call, you you can use WebRTC and, and start that call and it's really great and it works in browsers and blah, blah, blah. But the problem is generally nowadays you go through some central authority to figure out who the other peer is. That's right. It's still you still have that element of WebRTC at the moment. Yeah, but thankfully, it's not that is not written in stone. That's right. So WebRTC, and we'll see that evolve. I'm sure. I, I, I totally agree. WebRTC is totally peer, but all of the implementation that I've seen so far is centralized, and and that in that in itself is now if you project that onto a Katrina situation. That's totally useless. I mean, uh, there are peers and I can get to them. I just don't know which peer represents the person I'm trying to call. So I am out of luck. Yeah. It's kind of the same, you know, same issue. Yeah. I think the, uh, the last reason why I think this matters, and we touched on it earlier, is, the fa- is this distribution of control, which you've talked about at length with Bitcoin. And then, but you've also got this distribution of processing power, where if mm-hmm. I can use, if, I've, if my phone is always on the net, uh, why can't I use that device to contribute to the overall processing power of the application, whatever that application might be? I should be able to use my essentially slice some time from my phone and let it contribute in return for getting the benefit from that network. Yeah. And since it's always on and we know 
that it's only going to get faster, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's LTE or we move to almost uh, ubiquitous Wi-Fi over the next few years, uh, the device is going to be on high speed all the time. Yeah. Last thing I want to talk, though, is about efficiency. Because uh, there is an efficiency uh, uh, piece to this. Um, we, we touch on it slightly, but it is a very, very critical piece. Um, you wouldn't have a system like this working if it weren't more efficient than, you know, the old client-server Google kind of thing. Maybe there's reasons why Google isn't isn't totally distributed because obviously people would kill to get Google's algorithm right. and how they you know rank pages or whatever. Of course, so maybe that's not inherently uh, uh, distributable right at right at the outset. But I would I would submit that there are actually ways to do it uh, in a scenario where you can. Um, uh, sign things and uh, and distribute them with a with a pretty strong guarantee that the the entity is what he who he says he is because he's been able to very quickly sign keys. Um, I think there are probably ways to do even a Google like that. So I think there are efficiency reasons across the network as well. It's not that we're blindly switching here from you know processing in the center, then processing on the edges, and then sort of halfway between the edges and the center, and now we're going back to the edges. I mean, it's not – there are there are strong reasons for it. Uh, That's right. You know, and aside, I think, not, to your point, not every application will work this way because not all applications will work well this way. Right. Uh, so, but I think for some of our core infrastructure applications, I think we're going to see more and more of them move this way. Yeah, I you know I, one one thing I was thinking uh, back in the day when spam was this is like two thousand two thousand one when spam was a huge problem and there weren't really very good machine learning type controls in 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 the way um, a couple of scenarios for dealing with spam were proposed and one of them is a cost to send model like you would yes. you know you would pay a penny to get a uh, to send a, a spam a piece of email and therefore make it financially unfeasible uh, you know to send spam nobody wanted to do that of course because then it's like well you now you're just replicating the uh, the uh, post office however in a proof of work uh, uh, scenario like Bitcoin, like let's just say we created a new thing using the Bitcoin uh, uh, code base called, I don't know, Mailcoin. And you go and you mine, and every time you mine a coin, now you can spend that coin to send mail. That's it, right. So you can send, maybe it's a, you know, it's a, and each email has a price and however many emails you can send is based on how much you have in your account. Right. So if you want to be a spammer, You've got to go buy mining hardware and sit there paying electric bills and paying for hardware to mine for uh, for mail coins. I mean, there's a way to do it that doesn't include, you know, U.S. dollars or some other currency like that, but rather, you know, CPU currency. Yeah, it's just it's labor defined loosely as work being done, yeah. uh, you know, to to provide worth to the overall network. I think yeah. it's a, I think that's a really interesting way to solve the spam problem because yeah. you have now and mail is essentially free right now. 
you can yeah. can send as much as you want, and yeah, you might get blacklisted, but you just turn up another one tomorrow on a different domain and do it all over again. Well, we're and, still we're still paying the price in machine learning systems to spot spam. Yeah, well, we're and think paying, about all of, yeah, and all of the time and effort that goes into making sure that spam doesn't get into your inbox. Just think about how many hundreds of thousands of hours Google's probably invested sure. in their spam engine. Sure. Right. So. And so, so, so rather than paying for it on the front end when you're sending it, we're effectively paying it on the, the tail end to filter it. Yep. That's so, exactly right. You know, and, and which is better? I would argue probably the Bitcoin idea uh, in the long run. But uh, you're talking about a huge infrastructure change that would have to happen. And I think, uh, you know, it's really interesting that Bitcoin has been implemented as a financial in the financial realm. Because that's the one that you need to to have work correctly first. Yep. Uh, you can't go back and rebuild, you know, re-engineer the the banking system kind of, you know, down the road. It's uh, that's that's much harder than trying to fix a spam problem. Well, and if you if you solve the financial, if it works for money, yeah. then it will work for any other thing where it's applicable. Because the incentive to break it for money is far greater than the incentive to break it for email or you know yeah. making voice calls. Like who cares about those if right. Uh, you know, if this, it, it wouldn't be nearly as interesting if they had started with Bitcoin as solving the mail problem. Yeah. So we're, we're probably starting with proof of work. Right. Essentially, it's proof of work. Right. So, so what are the other things that w- that can that could benefit? Well, you know, pretty much everything. L- like like names. Namecoin, for example, is a Bitcoin derived uh, system that that essentially replaces DNS. Instead of going to a registrar and paying 10 bucks a year for a domain, you, you, uh, you essentially can generate domains and, and sign them through Namecoin. Um, there are, this idea, I think, can be applied to, and can and will be applied to most of the, the disciplines out there uh, yeah. that right now have centralized solutions. Agreed. Yeah. Really interesting stuff. That is all we have for today. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. And we will see you next time on 353rd.